Well, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 once again, and we will pick up with verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is truly God's Word. We pretty well covered the subject last week uh, of the nearness of Christ's return. And even though perspectives may differ on the, the when and the how of Jesus' return, and, and even if people don't believe the Bible and that it is Jesus returning, nearly everyone believes that the world is coming to an end. You ask anyone across this planet, and they will tell you that at some point this world will reach an end. And I don't know if you've ever given much thought to how people tend to prepare for the end. How do people prepare for whatever end may come, as far as they know? The reality is, for many people, they just don't. Most people just don't prepare. They don't give much thought to it. They might believe that an end is coming, but it's inevitable. There's nothing we can do. There's no way uh, to prepare for it. So just enjoy life now and don't worry about it. Don't think too much about it. Some people try to prevent the end. Uh, you think about uh, climate change activists, for one. The end is coming. It's, we're all going to be burned up in the next 10 years, so save the planet now. Uh, that's the attitude of some. And yeah, take care of your planet, but you're not going to be able to prevent the end when the time comes. Some people prepare for self-preservation. Uh, we've all met preppers, right? Does everyone know a prepper? Uh, they've got the, the stash of food that could last them three to five years or more. Uh, they've got shelter. They've got ammunition to protect their food and their shelter. And uh, everything they could possibly need to defend their home and defend their food and feed their family for a given amount of time. So different people prepare different ways when they think about the end. But the question for us is, what about Christians? What about Christians? How do we prepare for the end? And just like everyone else in the world, we don't all agree on the details of the when and the how. Um, there are those who say that Jesus is going to come uh, first and then there will be a tribulation and then he'll come again and, and judge the earth and set up his kingdom. There are those who say, no, we'll go through a tribulation first. Then Jesus will come and get his church and set up his kingdom all at once. He's going to come and then set up his kingdom or the church ushers in the kingdom and then Jesus comes or there's no kingdom at all. He's just going to come and get us and we'll go straight to heaven. There are t myriads of views on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And uh, I'm just not going to argue about it. I don't think it's worthwhile. Uh, as long as we're clear on this one reality, Jesus is coming. And he is coming soon. Whatever soon may mean, Jesus is coming and his coming is near. But even though we don't uh, agree on all the details, there's no one who takes the Bible seriously who would say that Jesus isn't coming and that he'll bring an end to this world as we know it. We looked, uh, spent some time last week on the first part of verse 7. Peter says, but the end of all things is at hand. It's near. And if it was near, it was at hand 2,000 years ago when Peter wrote this letter, how much nearer are we now than we were then? Because in the eyes of God, a thousand years is but a day. A day is but a thousand years. His time is not like our time. We measure our time based on how long we live. And it seems like it's been a long time since Jesus came the first time. But I promise you this, He will come again and He will come soon. He'll establish His kingdom. He'll create a new heavens and a new earth. None of us know when that will be. So how do we prepare? How do we get ourselves ready as we anticipate the end of this world, as we expect the return of Jesus? How do we prepare ourselves? Let me just say this. We don't prepare like the rest of the world prepares for the end. We don't try to prevent it, certainly. Because any serious Christian who loves the Lord looks forward to the day that Jesus comes again. The day when we get to be with our God and our Savior. We don't look to just take care of our own selves as the world gets worse. We're not out just for self-preservation without consideration of others. But Peter spends a little bit of time here in these verses teaching us that as we near the end, Christians' focus should be on glorifying God by serving one another. It's not about looking to ourselves, making sure that we're taken care of and protect our supply, but that we should spend our time as the end nears, giving glory to God by serving one another. How do we do that? And I think Peter tells us four things in this passage that we should be doing as we near the end. Number one, pray. We spent a bit of time on prayer last week, so let me just summarize. Verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Since the end is near, we must be people who pray. To summarize this, be serious and watchful. We must prioritize our lives in such a way that we are constantly ready, constantly in a frame of mind to pray. After describing the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4, which we read just a little bit ago, Paul gave the church this list of instructions in the very next chapter. And right in the middle of his list in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says in verse 16, Pray without ceasing. We ought always to be in a state of prayer. We ought always to be ready to pray. He told the Colossian church, Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, he said, Continue earnestly in prayer. In other words, devote yourselves to prayer. It ought to be a priority in our lives. 
In Ephesians 6, after he listed the the pieces of the armor of God, Paul doesn't say, okay, you've got your armor on, now go fight the devil. That's not what Paul says. No, listen to what he says. Ephesians 6, he said this, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So Paul doesn't say, you've got your armor on, now go fight the devil. You've got your armor on, now go charge into battle. No, he says, you've got your armor on, now pray. Always, with all supplication, we must pray. And so I think we just simply have to ask ourselves occasionally, what is it that keeps us from prayer? What's keeping you from prayer? First, what sin might there be that's hindering your prayer life? Whatever it is in your life that would be hindering you from prayer, especially if it's sinful, repent of it. Cast it aside. It's not worth having an obstacle between you and God. There are, I have a lot of relationships with a lot of people, and there are things that can come between me and another person that would hinder that relationship. But there, if there is anyone that I don't want to have a hindrance in my relationship with, if there's anyone that I don't want any kind of communication barrier with, it's God. I need Him. I need the Lord. And I want to have that clear pathway between he, me and Him. I don't want to have any sin between us. But second, not just that thing that might be sinful, but what about that thing that isn't inherently sinful but distracts you from prayer? Maybe it's picking up your phone as soon as you open your eyes in the morning. You can barely see, but the first thing you look to is the news or social media or the weather or whatever. Maybe it's listening to music or watching TV every time you have a moment alone or every break in your day. Again, I'm not talking about things that are inherently wrong, but they distract us from the time that we should be praying. Maybe it's just staying busy, scheduling activities all the way up to the end of the day, and by the time you get home, you crash and you're ready for bed, leaving you no time to spend with the Lord. Again, not things that are inherently sinful, but things that keep you from prayer. If you want to have a relationship with the Lord, you have to make time for your relationship with the Lord. Make time for prayer. If Jesus is coming soon, if the end really is near, what is truly more important? We must be people who pray. Number two, love. Love. That seems simple enough. Peter says, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Since the end is near, we must be people who love one another fervently. In Christian conduct, Peter actually ranks love, he says, above all things. He puts it at the very top of the list. And he's not alone. Paul did the same thing in Colossians 3. He gave another one of his lists. He was really good at lists. Uh, This one about the character of the Christian. And at the end of the list, he says this in Colossians 3.14, But above all these things, 
All these other things and in, in how Christians ought to behave themselves. Above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. You want to know what will be the strongest of bonds in Christian unity? You know what will unite Christians together above all things? It is love for one another. So both Peter and Paul say, Love is above all these things, but that really shouldn't surprise us because it was Jesus himself who said, By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if there's anything that ought to set the church apart from the world, if there's anything that ought to separate the way Christians live their lives from the way the rest of the world lives their lives, and we can make a list of a lot of things that ought to separate how we live our lives from the world, but if there's one thing that would summarize it all or one thing that everything else flows out of, it really must be the way that we love one another. Specifically, Peter says, have fervent love for one another. The word fervent, the Greek word is ektenes, it means strenuous or intense. It's a love that works hard to express itself. It's a straining kind of love. It's like you're running a race and you're trying to make this certain time and you're in the last quarter mile and you know you're cutting it close so you, you push yourself a little harder, a little faster to get to the end. Or if you're one to lift weights, you've got this goal in your mind that you want to lift and so you, you add a few extra pounds, a little more than what you've done before and you strain to meet that goal. You see, the kind of love that Peter and Paul and Jesus prescribed for the church isn't this fluttering, emotional, feel-good kind of love that just always comes naturally. The kind of love that we're called to love each other with is a hard-working kind of love. And let's just be honest, sometimes it is difficult to show that kind of love. Everyone is familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. It's probably been read at just about every wedding you've ever been to. But you, you think of this love in that kind of context, that it is a hardworking, a difficult, a straining kind of love. This is what Paul says love is. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And he says, love never fails. That's a hard kind of love. That's a kind of love that requires straining and intensity and work. It's, in fact, it's humanly impossible to love that kind of way perfectly. None of us love anyone that way without failure. Because it's hard. But it's the way that God loves. It's the way that He showed His love toward you. 
Not while you were good or righteous, but while you were a sinner. While you lived in rebellion against him. That's how he loved us when he sent Jesus. That's the gospel, isn't it? For God so loved the world. Well, how? What kind of love? To what extent did he love? That he gave his only begotten son. Now you tell me this, was Jesus sustained through his earthly ministry, through the persecution that he endured, through the, the mocking, the rejection, the beatings, and the crucifixion? Was he sustained by a, an emotional, fluttering, feel-good kind of love for you? No. It did not feel good to go to the cross. It was not a pleasure to go to the cross. It was hard. It was difficult. It was work. But that's the kind of love that God loves you with. Even when you're difficult to love. And so having been loved by God in such an extraordinary, in such a selfless way. If you're a Christian and you've been born again and you've experienced that love. We should desire to show that same kind of love to one another. And Peter gives us a specific application of this love. It's the preacher's dream when, when the writer just tells you how to apply it. He says, For love will cover a multitude of sins. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Now he's quoting from Proverbs 10 there. Now, we just read 1 Corinthians 13, and, and you may not have caught it, and your translation may read a little differently, but I just read from the New King James, and verse 5 says that love thinks no evil. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he never thinks about anything that's evil, but it literally means that love does not consider a wrong. It means that people who love this way do not think about the evil that has been done to them. One translation says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. That's difficult. That is, you're not resentful. You see, if you're a Christian, your greatest joy is in knowing that your sins have been forgiven. That they've been washed away, that they've been cast as far as the east is from the west into the sea of forgetfulness, as the old song says. God's not keeping a record of your wrongs. He's not considering your offenses against Him if you have been born again, if your sins are forgiven. He doesn't resent you for the things that you've done. And we say, praise God for that. But now, if you are going to love like a Christian, you can't hold on to the wrongs that others have done to you. This would save marriages. This would strengthen churches. This would heal families. If... Christians realized how much they had been forgiven and in turn forgave others and let go of the wrongs that had been done against them. 
That doesn't mean that we ignore sin. It doesn't mean that the church doesn't practice discipline when necessary. It doesn't mean that those who are abused at home or in the workplace shouldn't ask for help. That's, that's not what that means at all. It just means that in the, the general way of things, when someone sins against you, you don't hold it against them. You don't hold a grudge. That's the Christian kind of love, a love that covers a multitude of sins because you think about the number of your sins that have been covered by the blood of Christ. If Jesus really is coming soon, if the end really is near, do grudges really matter? We must be people who love. Number three, Peter says to show hospitality. Show hospitality. Verse 9, he says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So since the end is near, we must be people who show cheerful hospitality. This is just the overflow of the command to love one another. And Peter specifically says to show hospitality to one another. He's talking to the church, to Christians. And this is one way that we demonstrate this real kind of Christian love. And in Peter's day, it was particularly necessary. You remember, he's writing to Christians, many of whom are being persecuted. Persecution drove many of them from their homes. They didn't have a, a Holiday Inn Express down the road that they could just check into and spend the night to get off the streets. And even if they did, they likely didn't have enough money to pay for a room and if persecution had driven them from their homes and from their jobs, they most likely had a hard time feeding themselves and their families. So Peter, in, in this kind of world, this environment, writes to these Christians and says, be hospitable to one another. You need each other. You, we think about preparing for the end or prepping this is the opposite of how people usually think. Preppers need food. You need shelter and you need ammo to protect your food and shelter. It's very self-centered when people think about preparing for the end. But Peter, in this verse, says the opposite of that. He doesn't say, get what you need for yourself, shut off your home, take care of you, take care of your family, and you're good to go. No, he says, don't just hoard for yourself. Open your home. Open your pantry. Open your wallet. Take care of one another. Be hospitable to one another. And now when we think about Christians in this day and we compare to our own day, it might seem difficult to find application for ourselves here, but it's really not all that difficult. There are always people who are in need. Well, you just think about the concerns right now about, you know, inflation and the, the nature of the, the nations and the world's economy. There are plenty of people who need help. There is plenty of opportunity for hospitality. And it just might get worse before it gets better. And even beyond financial needs, Christians just need each other. Christians need fellowship with other Christians. Non-Christians need relationships with Christians so that they can be led to the truth. Some of you may be a, a product of this, but countless lives have been changed by a simple question such as, hey, what are you doing for lunch today? 
Or, hey, do you have dinner plans Tuesday night? And you invite someone into your home or you take someone out to lunch and you spend time with them. You ask questions, you get to know them, you find out what kind of spiritual needs they have and you lead them to the Word of God. But keep in mind Peter's words. He doesn't just say be hospitable, but he says be hospitable to one another without grumbling. That's probably the most common way to show hospitality, right? You get brave enough and you say, you know, how about you come over for dinner Tuesday night? And they say, yeah, that sounds great. I'll be happy to come. And then Tuesday afternoon when you're cleaning the house and trying to get the food ready, you're thinking, why in the world did we invite these people to come to our house? (laughs) Peter says, be hospitable to one another, but do it without grumbling. Do it cheerfully. You see, if Jesus really is coming soon, if the end really is near, are our homes and our mealtimes best used for our own comfort or in service of others? We must show hospitality. Number four, serve. That seems sort of general after giving a couple of specific things. But look at verse 10. He says, and as, such, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So since the end is near, we must be people who serve one another. Now I read it here in the New King James, minister it to one another. And the word minister just means to serve, but I like using the word minister because it reminds us that our church has more than one of those. A lot of times I get referred to as the minister at Simmons Grove Baptist Church. The definite article, the one and only. (laughs) You know, I am the pastor, and I've got this job of preaching and providing leadership giving direction for the church and pointing us to the Word of God. But I just want to be clear about this. The church should have as many ministers as it has members. Just to make sure you hear me, the church should have as many ministers as it has members. Each one has been gifted in some way to minister to one another, to serve. Every Christian is called to serve, as Peter says to do it, as each one has received a gift. Now, not all of you need to get up here and preach. That would get confusing. Certainly, not all of you can get up here and lead the singing. Not everyone can pile in the nursery and take care of kids on Sunday morning, though perhaps a few more of you should. We could go down the list of all the jobs in the church. Not everyone can do everything, but each of us can and should do something. Each one has received a gift. What is your gift? You don't have to, it's not some abstract thing out there in the distance. Just think practically. What has God given you the ability to do? What kind of desire has God put in you for serving His church? That just might be your gift. Maybe you have a a very practical skill set that not everyone has. 
And it just makes sense to use it for God. It's not rocket scientists. I can't even say it. It's not rocket science. He says, use our gifts as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In the word manifold, it just means various or diversified. God makes sure that the church has everything it needs without wearing one person out by spreading the gifts that it needs out throughout each person in the congregation. So I want you to know this. You need the church. You hear people say it all the time. I love Jesus, but don't love the church. I can be a Christian at home. You need the church. You can't do everything. You can't meet your every spiritual need on your own. You need people around you. You need a community of believers who have been gifted in various ways who can serve you. And you can benefit from that. But it goes both ways. You need the church. But listen well, the church needs you. The church needs you. Because if God has given a gift to each one, for service in the church. He may not have given a gift to you that he also gave to someone else who can pick up your slack. And so just as much as you need to be in the church benefiting from the gifts of others, you need to be in the church giving your gifts, serving, finding your place to serve these people that we call our Christian brothers and sisters. So are you being a good steward of the gift God has given you? Are you actively involved in serving the people in your local church? Peter makes it clear that we use our gifts to serve one another, but we have to do it in the strength that God provides. We have to be dependent on God's strength. Look at that first part of verse 11. He says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers or serves, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. You see, if, if your gift involves speaking, if you do get up in a pulpit and preach, or if you're a, a Sunday school teacher, or if you lead a discipleship group, if your job has to do with speaking, your speaking must be the words of God. It's not about you. It's not about your personality. It's not about me. It's not about how well I might be able to speak. It's about what God has said in His Word. So if your gift has to do with speaking, you speak the Word of God. Because that's the only Word that has power. If your gift involves service and doing, you do it. With God's strength. With God's strength. We must be dependent on God's help in everything we do. And especially when it's something that we're gifted to do. You've got a talent. You've got a skill. And you're using it in the church. And, I, and we say praise God for that. But it's easy to become dependent on your own ability and your own skill. Our work might be done well by human standards in, in our own strength. 
We could serve a lot of people in our community. We could give a lot of money to missions. We could do a lot for each other in this congregation. And we could say, praise God, this is a church that loves each other and serves each other. But if we want to do anything that has any kind of eternal spiritual benefit for anybody, we have to do it in God's strength. We have to do it dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it doesn't matter how good of a speaker you are. It doesn't matter how well you can articulate the gospel, how much Greek or Hebrew you know. It doesn't matter how well you can exegete the scriptures and explain it. Without the power of God, without the help of the Holy Spirit, no one's heart will ever be changed, either to become a Christian or to walk with the Lord more closely than they are now. It takes the power of God. You might be great at whatever kind of work you do as a, a deacon or someone in the brotherhood or in the Baptist women or in one of our discipleship group mission projects. You can do a lot of good, but it will never do anyone any eternal spiritual good. It won't matter once this world is gone unless we do it dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. We must depend on God's strength. We need it. We need Him. We need God. And so if Jesus really is coming soon, if the end really is near, can we really sit idly by and not serve and use the gifts that God has given us? We must use God's gifts in God's strength to serve God's church. We must. Here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Verse 11, about halfway through, he says that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's purpose for your life. This is what your life is all about. It's why you were made. That having come to faith in Him and been born again, you might serve Him using the gifts that He has given you, dependent on His strength, all for His glory. All for His glory. Not yours. Oh, I have to check my own heart all the time. I pray for God to do big things. I pray for God to bless our church. I pray for God to bless the ministries that go on here. I pray for people to be saved, for Christians to be revived and to be faithful servants, faithful followers. But I have to check my heart. I don't want to get the glory for anything. We sang that song, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's our tendency is to veer off track, maybe doing the right things, but have a bad motive. Friend, our motive, our drive in everything that we do must be that God would be glorified. That God would be praised. Why? Because the glory and the dominion already belong to Him, both now and forever. He's the only one who is worthy of glory. 
knowing that Jesus really is coming soon, knowing that the end really is near, we must be found faithful. For Christians, preparing for the end means bringing glory to God in serving His church. That's it. That's the point. For Christians, preparing for the end means bringing glory to God through serving His church. It's that simple. What steps do you need to take today in order to be obedient to what God has called you to do and what He's gifted you to do? How do you need to be making more time for prayer in your life? How do you need to show love to someone that you may be tempted to resent? How do you need to show hospitality to someone this week? Maybe today. How do you need to step up and start serving using the gifts that God's given you to serve His church? If you are serving, are you serving in the strength of your own flesh or in the power of the Holy Spirit? What needs to change in your life today for you to give glory to God in the way you live? Are you prepared for the end? For Christians, preparing for the end just means bringing glory to God in serving His church. And if you're not a Christian, if you've not been born again, if you're still living in sin, unrepentant, the only way that you can begin to prepare for the end is to repent and to run to Jesus for mercy. Judgment is coming. The end is near. And even if Jesus doesn't come in your lifetime, you will die. And you will be judged for your sin. But God has made a way of escape. He's provided safety for you in sending Jesus. Turn from your sin and come to him for mercy. He has plenty. Let's stand and pray together. God, we thank you for your word. It's clear. It's straightforward. Lord, we're unable in our own strength to be obedient. So we come to you for help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. That we might see the priority of prayer. That we might love one another fervently. That we might show hospitality and serve and use our gifts for your glory and to serve your church. God, may we give you glory in the way we live our lives. And may we live in anticipation, in expectation of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that the sinners among us who have not yet repented and put their trust in him would do so today. In Jesus' name, amen.